The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're going through the Minor Prophets, finishing up this series, Christ in the Minor Prophets. We're in the book of Zechariah. It is two books before uh, the book of Matthew. So Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And remember, the minor prophets are called minor not because they're unimportant, but because they're short. All 12 of them could have fit on one scroll uh, back when they put the Bible on scrolls before we had book binding. And the book of Zechariah, Zechariah was a prophet who ministered at the same time as Haggai. So this is after the exile. If you remember your, your Jewish history, uh, the kingdom of Israel was broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was taken into captivity into Assyria. They were conquered by Assyria, taken into captivity. And then later the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. And of course, when you think of the Babylonian exile, probably the first people that come to mind are Daniel, the prophet who uh, was raised in that Babylonian empire, his uh, friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Shakrach and Benny, if you're a VeggieTales fan, were raised at that time also. And there was this promise, Daniel in fact gave this promise that Israel was going to return to the land. And so after exile, Cyrus is raised up as king and Cyrus tells Nehemiah, his cupbearer, to go ahead and go back to Israel and rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. And, and the nation comes back, and we saw last time in Haggai that they had come back and they had run into to conflict. They had run into trouble. The people who had moved in after they were exiled tried to prevent them from rebuilding the temple, suing them, taking them to court. And so they had given up hope, and they were rebuked because they had built their own houses with wood paneling, it even says, but God's house had been unfinished. And so God called them back through the prophet Haggai to rebuild the temple. And we saw that last time. And, and these last three books in the Minor Prophets, they are characterized, we saw the whole series is characterized by God's salvation. God coming and glorifying Himself and bringing salvation through judgment. God's glory is seen in his salvation through judgment. And throughout the book of the Minor Prophets, we've seen that judgment, God was going to judge not only the nations around them for their idolatry and their immorality, but He was going to judge the people of Israel for the same thing. That they were just like the nations around them. In fact, the exile was their punishment, their judgment. And so now they're coming back and we still see tones of judgment in these books. But there's also uh, this overwhelming hope fact, the title this morning, The God of Hope and Glory. They're returning from exile. They're daring to hope again that God's going to keep His promises. Have you ever had a season in your life where you've, you, you felt that way? Perhaps you had been in a long season of sin. You knew it was wrong and you were just, you hardened your heart and you were rebelling against God and you were living in unrepentant sin. And then you're broken. You're repentant. And you come back and you... you You can remember those times, right? You come back into the doors of church and you feel like people are going to judge you. They're going to, first thing they're going to do is point their finger at you and say, oh, the guilty ones returned. 
or I told you so, or I'm ashamed of you, or you're not welcome here. And then you were surprised because when you came back, you realized they're saying, we love you. We missed you. We've been praying for you. How are you doing? Is there anything I can do to help? Why? Because this is what the gospel does. We're sinners saved by grace, all of us. And the gospel humbles us. If we believe the gospel rightly, we don't have a place to judge other sins because we know we're the sinner. And we can forgive much because we're forgiven much. And so you come back and, or perhaps you're in this season where you've been under great trial and great heartache and you come back to the Lord and you are daring to hope again. Is God's promises in Christ really yes and amen? Are they really true? And what I hope the book of Zechariah shows you this morning is he is the God of hope and glory. And the biblical definition of hope is an earnest expectation. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a crutch just to get us by in this world. Biblical hope is an earnest expectation that God is going to do what he says. So when he says... He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to do it. may not be on your timetable. It may not be in the manner you think is best. He may decide to do it by sending trials your way. Trials that you have no idea how you're going to get through. But he's going to be faithful to finish what he started. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. He's the God of hope and glory. Because the end goal of this hope, these promises of God, is that we're going to share in His glory. We're going to participate in the life of God. Think about this. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who've been living since He, from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, in a perfect relationship of love and honor, a perfect relationship of, of just intimacy and fellowship and communion they've decided in their great love and their grace and their mercy to include us and and that's what we see in the book of revelation we see that the god of glory the god of the universe father son and spirit who are in this perfect community have welcomed us in and we're going to be with them forever this is our hope And this is what you and I need to hear this morning more than anything. Because we can look around in the news and have no hope. It doesn't take far. We don't even have to get a newspaper anymore. You just pick up your phone. And you could become the most depressed person on the planet. Where the darkness doesn't even lift. And what you need to hear is the God of the universe is still on his throne. He's in control. No one's knocked him off. He hasn't abdicated. He's not asleep at the wheel. He's the God of hope and glory. And he's going to finish what he started. And he's going to make all things new. And we shouldn't mistake his kindness for weakness. Or his patience that he hasn't acted so far, meaning he will never act. No, the reason he hasn't acted to bring judgment on the world is because his loving kindness and his patience, he desires, Peter says, none should perish, but all should come to him. Well, book of Zechariah, let's turn there. Now, it takes 35 minutes to read the book of Zechariah from beginning to end, so I am not going to do that this morning. 
I know I've done that with some of the shorter books, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm just going to walk us through the big picture. And I think there's a good benefit in this. Uh, Our dear friend George Fox, when I was taking Old Testament survey classes with him, also took exposition classes with him, he, he jokingly said one time that surveying is studying so little about so much that pretty soon you know nothing about everything. <laughs> and exposition is studying so much about so little that pretty soon you know everything about nothing. And somewhere in the middle is where we ought to end up in our teaching. And I think that's true. I've heard a sermon on the first word of the book of James, James. And the guy did the whole sermon on James. And it was an intro and I get what he was doing. He was introducing the author and the date and... But I didn't think it was the best sermon I heard. Book of Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah, as I said, they ministered together in the begin, really in the later part of 520 BC. So this is 500 years before the coming of Jesus. They labored together. They presented a similar unified message. Haggai, as I said, he exhorted his listeners to rebuild the temple. He encouraged them with this hope that the glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Remember, we saw that last time. They're looking around and, and Solomon's temple was filled with gold and luxury and beautiful. And this house, this temple they were building was wood and sticks. And he said, just finish it. Go out in the forest and get some trees, cut them down and just finish the temple. Of course, The reason the glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house is because it was a promise of the Messiah who was to come, who is the temple. He's the one who said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, but he was talking about the temple of his body. And then, now that he's raised and ascended, He now, by the Spirit, is building a spiritual house, Ephesians 2 says. We're His temple. And the Spirit's dwelling inside of us. And it's glorious that that this idea of the presence of God among His people has come in a greater and more glorious way than that temple in the Old Testament in us. And if people want to see the glory of God, all they got to do is get around Christians now. Because we are the place where God's glory dwells. Following Haggai, in fact, by only a few weeks, if you take the chronology, Zechariah begins with these words of divine displeasure in chapter 1. The Lord was angry with your forefathers, verse 2. In fact, let's just read verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented. And said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And the great hope here, even in this introduction, is that he says, they repented. And so I brought them back out of exile and I brought them back into the land. And I want you to rebuild the temple so that I will return to you and be in your midst. 
And I'll be your God and you'll be my people. You see, he's the God of second chances. We see it right here. Return to me and I'll return to you. You have not outsinned the grace of God this morning. You're here, you're alive, you're breathing. You have an opportunity to return to God and he will return to you as it says. He's the God of second and third and fourth chances. But as the, as the scripture says, for example, in the book of Hebrews, today's the day of salvation. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Our life's a vapor. We're here one minute and gone the next. And he says, return to me and I'll return to you. This is, this is the burden of the, the, the prophet. This is the burden of God to say, come to me, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And so what God does is he gives Zechariah eight visions in chapters one to eight. Eight visions. Actually, chapters one to six. And we see these eight visions, and you can read through these. I'm just going to read bits and pieces of them. But the first one, in chapter 1, verses 7 to 17, is this man on a red horse. And what it pictures is the Lord's dominion over the rebuilding of the nation of Israel. God is on His throne. And the first thing we see in these eight visions, the reason why we can have hope that that our God is the God of hope and glory is because He is on His throne Because of his sovereign rule. If you want, in fact, just think of the first six chapters as the rule of God, the reign of God over the nations, over his people. And the reason we can have hope is because he is sovereign on his throne. And no one is going to thwart his will. No one is going to change his mind. He's going to accomplish all of his good purposes. And so the man on a red horse, the Lord's dominion over Israel's rebuilding, the Lord desired to encourage and comfort His people with a reminder of His faithfulness and His presence. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. The angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Think about what he's saying here. The Lord loves his people. He loves his people. And the presence of this angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord, it benefits his nation Israel. He's reigning sovereign over every nation, which is why hope is not a pipe dream. Because he can actually do what he says. Isn't that true? We we love to, to give promises and give hope to our kids, to our families, to our friends. Think about that. You you've made promises to your family that you haven't been able to keep. And it may not have been because you meant to lie. It may be because you didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. You didn't know that you were going to have to spend all your savings on this emergency. Or it may be because circumstances were out of your control and you didn't have the power to change it. God is on his throne and he has the power and the ability to do what he says. No one can thwart his purposes. 
And I love what it says here in verse 14. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. The Lord's jealousy for His people demonstrates a faithful relationship that God offers His people. The one place I can think of where jealousy is biblical and godly is in the marriage. It is right for a wife to be jealous over her husband and a husband to be jealous over her wife. If someone came in and broke those marriage vows, there would be anger because of the, and there would be jealousy and it would be holy and right. It's a reflection of God's holy jealousy over his people. He loves them. He's jealous for them. He's going to restore them. He won't let the nations take advantage of them forever. So he says, I'm going to be faithful to my promises. The second vision is seen in 18 to 21. We're not going to read it, but the Lord's judgment on the nations who persecute Israel. God's control over all of the players on the world political stage He moves the hearts of kings, the psalm says, like rivers. He's the one who raises up leaders and puts leaders down. And sometimes when he raises up leaders, it's not to be a blessing, it's to be a curse. He raised up Pharaoh for that very purpose, didn't he? And he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his glory would be seen. The third vision is chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The Lord's bright future for Jerusalem. I just want to look at verse 10 and 11. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Uh, the picture, by the way, is this surveyor who goes and surveys the land. And he surveys Jerusalem and he says, hey, this is, this is a good plot. This is a good place. It's going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a great future, a bright future for Jerusalem. But verse 10, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is amazing because if you look at the personal pronouns in verse 11, the one who's coming, who's God in their midst, is distinct from the Lord of hosts who sent him. Who is this? This is the Son. This is the Lord Jesus. And so what's he talking about? He's talking about that Davidic covenant where the Lord promises to come and dwell among his people and have a ruler who's going to reign in Zion forever. And the one who's going to come, do you notice here that it's not just for Israel? He says in verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. This is a promise of the Lord Jesus coming and Him bringing salvation, like Isaiah says, not just to Israel, but be a light to the nations. That's why Jesus, the Great Commission, is that we're to go and make disciples of all the nations. And here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet. We are the nations at the end of the earth. And the Gospels come to us. This is the Lord Jesus keeping His promise. The fourth vision is the cleansing of the high priest in chapters three, chapter 3, 1 through 10. And what we see in this vision is the Lord requires holy worship. In the first three visions, Zechariah is talking about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. In visions 4 and 5, he's envisioning the temple and its courts, preparing it for the presence of the Lord. And he says... I require holy worship. Even the high priest has to be cleansed. 
But then he goes and he speaks of the high priest Joshua. And what he does in Joshua is he unites priest and king. And it's a picture again of the Messiah. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they're men who are assembled. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. And that should be a key word for you because Zechariah is hearkening back to Isaiah, the prophet, who speaks of the Messiah who's going to be a branch from the line of Jesse, the root of David. And he's going to spring up and he's going to bring salvation to the nations. Verse 9, for behold, the stone that I set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription upon it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So you actually have three pictures of Messiah here. He's the servant, my servant. He's the branch, that's verse 8. And he is the stone, verse 9. Many commentaries speak of the cornerstone who was raised up by the Lord. I've set my stone in Zion, a precious cornerstone, and he will not be shaken. This is the hope we have, this promise. Ultimately, Joshua's high priestly position points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful high priest who mediates, intercedes for the people of God with perfection and finality. You see, this is a superior priesthood. Joshua had to be cleansed. But the Lord Jesus, because he's perfect, he can be our high priest. You know, if you think about priesthood, that's such a foreign concept to us. Maybe it helps to think about a lawyer, an advocate, someone who argues on your benefit in court. But see, the biblical picture of the old priesthood is that your lawyer needs a lawyer. Because they're guilty too. But Jesus, the high priest, has never sinned. He's perfect. In fact, turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, word confidence, we draw near with confidence. Parecia, it means boldness. We have bold confidence to come into the Father's very presence because Jesus is our high priest who's gone before us. And he's introduced us into the presence of the Father so that we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You see, this picture, this to, this to us, we, we, we kind of get the idea that the only way we could meet our president is if someone ushered us in and introduced us. We couldn't just walk up to the White House and ring the doorbell and say, I'd like to see President Obama, please. They would say, get out of here. But it was even greater of an... It was, it was even more of a remote idea in this day and age and in the Old Testament with kings is you couldn't go in. Do you remember the story of Esther? When she presumed to go in without being in... 
uh, ushered in first. She knew her life was forfeit if the king decided, why are you coming into my presence? I didn't call for you. You see, we have one who's gone before us, our high priest, and he's ushered us into the presence of God, and so we can come in with boldness. In fact, the only ones in the 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 uh, in those monarchies, the only people who had access to the king was family, kids. If a kid toddled into the room to the king and they weren't invited, the king would just pick them up, and they would love their children. And this is another picture we have in Scripture, isn't it? That because of Christ, we're adopted into the Father's family. Now we're, as we sing, Jesus, thank you, we're seated at his table. We now have access to God the Father. And we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Are you in a time of need this morning? Maybe we don't even know it. You're in deep waters and you don't know what to do. You're at the end of yourself. You don't even know the right answer. You don't even know where to go to find the right answer. You can go into the very throne room of God the Father with boldness. And you can find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Because you have a high priest who's seated at his right hand. Who's interceding for you. Who's faithful. And you can have hope. And you don't have to worry that it's going to be crushed. You won't ever be put to shame. If God is for you, who could be against you? No one. Back to Zechariah. This cleansing of the high priest is the fourth vision. The fifth vision is the lampstand and two olive trees. And and what he's getting at in this vision is that the Lord's provision, the Lord's goodness in giving safeguards Israel's future. And just look at chapter 4, verse 6. Many of you know this verse. The Lord, he said to me, this is what the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The spirit of God is poured out as the Lord's provision in order in this context to safeguard Israel's future. And we know in the New Testament, the spirit is poured out to safeguard our future as well. We've been given the spirit as a down payment and guarantee of our inheritance. And if that's the down payment, if that's the, the, the pledge, what is the fullness going to be? Because the pledge is God himself. And so the fullness is going to be God himself forever. The sixth vision is the flying scroll. The Lord judges Israel for breaking the covenant. Let me just read this um, from one of the commentators. Zechariah saw the Lord's curse flying throughout the land, this flying scroll, entering the homes of those who bear guilt against God. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Old Testament elsewhere personifies the word of God going forth to do the Lord's bidding. For example, Isaiah 55, 11 declares, My word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This step of divine judgment and cleansing stands as a prerequisite to the restoration and other blessings the Lord holds for His people. Verse 4 ends with the declaration that the houses of the guilty will be torn down. And in the phrase, to destroy the house, house functions as a metonymy, uh, standing in the place of the inhabitants of the house. All who spurn God's righteousness will taste His judgment. 
And so here you see God's salvation through judgment. Those who spurn the Lord, those who turn away from Him, those who don't return to Him, He won't return to them. Instead, He will pour out His judgment. The seventh picture continues this idea of judgment. The Lord's going to remove sin from Israel's midst, and He's going to send it over to Shinar, Babylon. And I don't think it's any mistake that in the book of Revelation, the great enemy is Babylon, the enemy of old. And we see in those verses the only proper human response to the Lord's holiness and His invitation to serve Him is repentance, obedience, and worship. That's our response. When we get a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God, we ought to be humbled and our response ought to be repentance and obedience and worship. But mingled in that repentance and obedience and worship ought to be great hope. Because the holiness of God, what it demands, it actually gives. The Father gives the Son to us. The Father unites us to His Son by faith and the Father pours out His Spirit, giving us now the ability and the power to do what He commands. And so we ought to have hope. And finally, the eighth vision are these four chariots, the Lord's sovereignty over all creation. Chapter 6, verse 8. He cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. He says, After I rule sovereign and bring my judgment, peace is going to reign in the world. My wrath will be appeased. We can rest in this hope of God's rule. And the way we rest in this hope of God's rule is we do not grow weary in well-doing. We keep our eyes firmly fixed on the hope that is to be revealed to us, the New Testament says. That hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the eighth vision draws to a close, there's this sense of finality in these first eight visions, these first six chapters of the Lord's rule. God is in heaven, and all is going to be made right in the world. Then you have in chapter 6, verses 9 to 15, this crown of Joshua. In fact, let's just read it. The word of the Lord, chapter 6, verse 9, came to me saying, take an offering from the exiles from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and you go to the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they've arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. You have this interlude, and it's it's really kind of the hinge in the first half of the book of Zechariah and the second half. And this hinge is a prophecy of this one who's going to come, of which Josiah is a type, who is a priest and a king. 
And this one's going to come and he's going to be called Branch. And he's going to build the temple of the Lord. And he's going to bring peace. And he's going to rule on his throne. And he's going to reign. And this is a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who's going to rule. 500 years before he came, 520 something years before he came. And so we see this promise. And this is the hinge. And I wish I could spend more time on it, but we got to get through the rest of the book. But this is, the, and, and he's going to talk about Jesus more here. But now you see God's rule and the hope we have in God's rule. And we see here God's rule is going to be mediated through a Messiah, through this one who's going to be a branch of the line of David, who's going to unite the office of king and priest, and who's going to bring peace. He's going to be the prince of peace. And he's going to be the one who makes peace. And now we're going to see the hope we have here in chapter 7 and 8 through God's word. Through God's word. Chapter 7 and 8, there's some questions about fasting in chapter 7. And then these future blessings that are going to happen in, in chapter 8. And, and we see uh, in chapter 7 verse 1, there's another date. The fourth year of King Darius. And so it's two years later. Two years have passed since these eight visions were given about God's rule. And the hope they ought to have that God's going to reign through a Messiah. And he's going to make everything right and bring peace. Then he says to them, Zechariah actually in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7 declares the people guilty of hypocrisy because they failed to worship the Lord with a sincere heart. And so he's bringing the same message as earlier prophets. He brings them a question about their fasting. Do you have the right motives when you fast? And for us today we could say, do you have the right motives when you come to church on Sunday and worship? Are you just going through the motions? Do you honor God with your lips and is your heart far from Him? And what does he say? The response is chapter 7, verses 8 to 14. It's repentance. Look at 7, verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion to each other and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. It says, this is what I'm calling you to. It echoes Micah 6. What does the Lord require of you? He didn't want their burnt offerings in Micah 6 because they were from hip, hypocritical hearts. He says, do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Here he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And the neighbor here is those who are needy, those who are widows and orphans who are oppressed, those who are strangers, those who are poor. That is a reflection of your heart. You know why? Because when you go and give yourself to them, there's nothing you're going to get in return. The temptation is always to minister to people who are going to give something back to you. It's the whole basis of buying a good present in a white elephant exchange, isn't it? You're hoping you'll get a good present in return instead of somebody's leftover re-gifted calendar from 10 years ago. <laughs> he says... I'm calling you to repent and walk humbly with me. And in chapter 8, he says, these are the future blessings you're going to receive. And the hope here is rooted in the word of God, his promises that are yes and amen. I mean, put yourself in Israel's shoes. It's been two years. The temple's back underway. 
Haggai, it was successful. The people are rebuilding the temple. But you're looking at that temple and you're saying, man, the glory of it isn't greater than the glory of Solomon's. And we're living in the midst of our enemies. Our neighbors don't like us because we think they took our land, but really, uh, we think, they think we took their land, but really they took ours and we're just returning back to what is ours. And we're surrounded by our enemies and so God gives them a word, a promise that he is going to have future blessings for the city of Jerusalem in chapter 8. Listen to some of this. Chapter 8, verse 1. The word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. And thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. What a glorious promise. He goes on to say, verse 14, For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. And let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. Do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate declares the Lord. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, it will be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. What a glorious promise. And we see this partially fulfilled when Christ comes. He does good to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 15, he sends his son to be the descendant of Judah who's the Messiah. Christ is ruling and reigning from the third heaven, but he's coming back. And I believe scripture teaches he's going to come back and he's going to reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And I think this promise is going to be fulfilled when he comes back in his second coming. I think it's yet to be fulfilled. He says, this is your hope. In my word, my promises which are true. How many times did you hear it? I didn't even read the whole chapter. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And I think the reason he's using the title Lord of hosts, Yahweh Savaoth, this idea of he is the the head, the God, the Lord of the armies of the angels in heaven. He's emphasizing his omnipotent power. And he says, this is what I say. The one who holds all power, the one who holds authority all of the, over all of the armies in heaven. I'm going to bring restoration and peace and it's going to happen. You can bank on it. You can have hope in this. Trust my word. See, and this is something that we have a hard time doing, isn't it? 
I mean, we, we say this. I know I'm guilty of this. I say I believe the promises of God. I say I know these things are true. I want to rest in them. But what happens when trials come? What's the first thing we do? We run to our Google search. How do I, how do I get rid of these creditors that are calling me? How do I get rid of this? How do I find the answer to that? How often... Do we fear? How often do we have anxiety? And do we sin in that instead of trusting the Lord? Father, forgive us, right? Forgive us. We want to trust in this one who's ruling, who makes his promises good and true. We want to wait on him. Like we sang, I picked Micah 7 7 on purpose because that was the message of Micah. I'm going to wait for the Lord, the, my God. My Savior, and I know He hears my prayers. We have to preach that to our hearts all the time, don't we? So, hoping in His Word. Then finally, the last section from chapter 9 to chapter 14 stresses a number of future themes. But I would summarize it this. We hope in the Son. We hope in Jesus, the Messiah. The reason we have hope and our hope will not disappoint is because all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And chapters 9 to 14 speak over and over and over again of the Messiah who's going to come, who is going to be our hope. The Lord's going to judge the nations through the Messiah. The Messiah is going to administer God's kingdom of peace and righteousness The worship of the Lord is going to be purchased and guaranteed from all the nations by those who were formerly enemies of His Son. The Father, through the Messiah, is going to purify sin. And God is going to finally, in the Son, make all of His promises to His nation Israel, yes and amen in Christ. What a glorious thought. They thought it was going to be in the first coming. You remember that? The disciples, the book of Acts, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, after Jesus is resurrected and he's standing there with the disciples and and Peter says to him, so now, is it now? Is now the time you're going to bring in the kingdom? And Jesus, I don't know, you know, I I don't want to ascribe motives to, to our God, but he kind of coyly says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, Right? But he says, you're going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses. Starting in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. And that's what's been going on since Jesus was ascended, since the Spirit's been poured out. We are about making disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth. That's what our marching orders are until Jesus returns. And in chapters 9 through 11, what we see is that Judah is going to triumph over her enemies. And the reason Judah is going to triumph over her enemies is because the one who's going to come from the line of Judah is the Messiah, the promised son of David. So chapter 9 is this holy war tradition fought by Yahweh. The Lord is a warrior. We looked at this in the Minor Prophets before a couple times. That we see the picture of God in the minor prophets is not as an aged elderly man with a beard. 
We see the picture of God in the Minor Prophets as a warrior who's in his prime, who's going to come and he's going to deliver his people and fight for his people. And the remarkable thing in chapter 9, look at verses 9 and 10. This one who's going to (laughs) come. This warrior, king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Here he is, he's coming. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This one who's coming, the one who's going to fight for us. What? He's on a donkey? He's humble? What in the world? Zechariah must have been just mind blown. I don't understand. Even his disciples, Jesus' disciples didn't understand. They thought he was going to kick off the heel of Rome. They were ready to fight. And what does he do? He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they shout, the crowd shout, quoting Zechariah, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they crucify him. And like a lamb led to slaughter, he was silent before his shears and he opened not his mouth. Wow. And to think that was the greatest victory accomplished. He crushed Death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, the devil, and he released us who lived all of our life in fear to death, Hebrews says. He delivered us from the bondage of fear and death. What a glorious thought. And so, there's going to be ultimate victory. Chapter 9, verse 11 to chapter 10, verse 1, he says, return to your fortress. And the fortress there ultimately is the Lord. He is the one who is the safe harbor for His people. In fact, Augustine, commenting on these verses, developed the point further saying that in verse 12, the fortress is a reference to Jesus. That He's our fortress. He's our high tower. And then you see this picture developed in chapter 10 and chapter 11 of shepherds. And... The shepherds over Israel are rebuked for their idolatry and judgment, verses 2 and 3. You remember what Jesus said when he looked out? He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we know in John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. All other shepherds are hirelings and they flee when the wolf comes. They run away. They don't really care about you. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me and they hear my voice and they follow me and they won't follow the voice of another. You remember what he said? I have other sheep who are of this, not of this fold and I must go get them so that they will be one flock with one shepherd. Jesus is fulfilling the promise of Zechariah. I am going to be a shepherd king who comes and meets the needs of his people and saves them and delivers them and serves them and even lays down my life for them. In fact, that's what it's going to say. Later in chapter 12, he's pierced for them. They're going to look on him whom they pierced and they're going to mourn. I'm getting ahead of myself. So Judah, as I said, chapters 9 through 11, Judah is going to triumph over her enemies. And the way Judah is going to triumph over her enemies is through a shepherd king who comes and ironically comes humbly as a servant to die. 
and in dying, he conquers and he rules and he reigns. Verses 12 to 14, Jerusalem is going to be a center of worship for all nations. Chapters 12 to 14. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, we see Israel's battle and victory in this world war. And I take this to be future, right before the second coming of Christ. Revelation 19 says that Jesus is going to return in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And he's going to destroy his enemies with the word of his mouth. And he's going to deliver his people, Israel. I take that to be the same reference here to chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. But look at chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of the Hadadrimam. In the plain of Megiddo, the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. What is he getting at there? He says, this repentance is going to be thorough and it's going to be individual. It's not just going to be the head of the household repenting for the whole house. It's going to be everybody looking on him whom they pierced and mourn. One of the most momentous messianic prophecies appears here in chapter 12, verse 10. The Lord's servant was pierced on behalf of his people. This echoes back to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. Colossians 2, the handwriting of requirements that were against us, he removed, having taken them out of the way, having removed them, having nailed them to a cross. And guess what? We bear them no more. And you know what that means? We can have genuine hope because we have real forgiveness. We've been declared righteous in the Son, justified. We've been purchased, we've been bought, we've been redeemed. God's righteous requirement was satisfied in Christ. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you are a Christian, you are here today and you are holy and righteous in the sight of God because of the finished work of Christ because He was pierced. And you can have hope that you will never be put to shame. You will never be forsaken. You will never fall out of the hands of this good shepherd. He was pierced. And so he says in chapter 13, this shepherd is the one who was struck, 13, 7 to 9. But there's going to come a day This shepherd who was struck and the sheep were scattered that was fulfilled when Jesus was killed and his disciples ran away. There's going to come about that there's going to be a remnant, verses 8 and 9, from Israel who are going to be saved. When Jesus returns in chapter 14, pictures this coming day, all the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem, chapter 14, verse 2. Israel's going to battle. They're going to have victory. Jerusalem's going to dwell in security. And it's going to lead at the end of the book, verses 16 to 21, to judgment for those who are the enemies and salvation of all the nations 
for those we know from the New Testament who trust in the Son. Let's just um, close by turning over to Matthew 25. What does this mean for us? Matthew 25, verse 31, (laughs) the return of Christ. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He's going to sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He's going to separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Wow, that picture of shepherd language again. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then go down to verse 46. These, those who fed and clothed and gave a cup of cold water and visited in prison, these will go away and Not these, these are the goats, will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What a picture. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to sit on his throne. He's going to gather the nations. And he's going to judge. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the goats are going to go into eternal punishment. And the sheep are going to go into eternal life. We know from the book of Revelation that this eternal life consists in being in the presence of God and of the Lamb forever. Filled with the Spirit forever. Remember what Jesus promised? Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water, those who believe in me. And he was, it was talking about the Spirit who is not yet poured out. But now the Spirit is poured out. And think about this. For all eternity, you are going to live as a Spirit-empowered person, man and woman, doing everything that God designed you to do for His glory and your joy, united to Christ forever, in His presence forever. That is hope. He's the God of hope and glory. And we may disagree over the details of how this is going to work out in those last days, but let me tell you this. Jesus is coming back and we win, so be ready. Father, thank You for this time. And your word, I pray that you would encourage my sisters and my brothers here. I don't know what all they're going through. I know some. And I know that I am not able to change their circumstances, Father, but I know your word is able to change their hearts and to give them hope where there was none, to relieve anxieties and fears. Oh, Father, would they cast their cares upon you because it matters to you about them. As we come to the table now, would you just be pleased with our remembrance and our worship of your Son? Would you, by your Spirit, even now glorify Him in our midst, I pray. Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.